Well, good evening, church. Uh, it is good to be with you all in the house of the Lord. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my name is Andrew, and I'm Alexander's older brother. Even though I am shorter and much smaller than he is uh, physically, I am, in fact, older. And can I just say what an honor it is to be here today uh, to preach God's word uh, to this church. 2020 is finally over. We made it. Uh, can we get a, a round of applause real quick that we made it through? What, what an awful year that was. And I know that for a lot of people, 2020 was a really hard year. There's, there's no getting around that. But for this church in particular, for Rua Church, 2020 was a pretty awesome year. I mean, not only did you guys start meeting in person and doing church services, but uh, the membership grew. You guys got a website with a mission, a vision, a values, and a statement of faith. Uh, but more importantly, and what I want to focus on, is the fact that God gave this church two incredible leaders. And I know every time that I come here, uh, I uh, build up Z and Max, and I know that it makes them very, very uncomfortable. But Max isn't here to defend himself, and I also know that the jiu-jitsu gyms have been closed here for about two months. So there's nothing that Z can do physically to stop me from what I'm about to say. So can I just say what a blessing and honor it is that God has given this church these two godly men. Uh, not only are they biblical leaders, but they actually live out the values that this church has on their website. Let's just take a look at the mission of Ruah Church. The mission of Ruah Church is that we exist to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God. And they both crush this. Not only are they discipling people uh, at their jobs during the week, but I know that there's people in this church who they're both pouring into and people that they live with that they are bringing along with them in the discipleship journey. The vision of this church is that they desire all people will savor God and his word. Well, Max was going to be a missionary in China, and when that fell through, he decided to move into Ruckel Street to live missionally with Muslims. And Alexander, he teaches at an underprivileged inner city school in Indianapolis. So when they say they want all people to savor God and his word, they mean all people. And the core conviction of this church is the authority of the scripture. And I don't have to tell you guys that if you listen to any sermon, any sermon that Z or Max has preached from this pulpit, it is biblical, it is exegetical, and it is faithful to the word of God. These guys are awesome. I know it, you know it, but it needs to be vocalized. And we need to be thankful to God that he has provided them for this church. Now, you're probably wondering, if those are the leaders of this church, how unlucky are you guys that you're stuck with me today? And I would agree, man. I think that they're both way more gifted and way more talented speakers uh, than I am. But there are two truths that I know to be true, regardless of who is standing in this pulpit, whether that be me or Z or Max or anybody else. And the first truth is this, that whoever you are, God has brought you here this Sunday tonight for a reason. That God, in his sovereign plan in his gracious providence has, has brought you here for a specific reason and a specific purpose. Regardless of how hard 2020 was for you, regardless of the, the employment status you have, the, the broken relationships or the burdens that you're carrying with you, God brought you here for a reason. And the second thing I know is this, that we serve a God of miracles. Amen? And since, not if, but since we serve a God of miracles— and that same God took 12 uh, unequipped, uneducated fishermen and used them to take his gospel to the ends of the earth and to start his church. That same God can take 
an unqualified and insecure 23-year-old who's standing here in front of you today to preach his word to his people. So, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Hosea chapter 7, like Maddie read. My aim in this sermon is to give us a theology of repentance. I want to walk through what repentance is, what repentance is not, and why true, authentic, genuine repentance is the only appropriate response to knowledge of our sin in front of a good and holy God. You see, the nation of Israel in Hosea chapter 7 was on a path to destruction, and they're faced with a choice. They can either continue on their path to death and destruction, or they can repent from their sins and turn and follow God. So, pick me up in chapter 7, verse 1. When I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed, and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief breaks in, and the bandits raid outside. You see, what's fascinating here is that even though they are dealing falsely with others and with one another, the most grave type of false dealing they have is with themselves. They're lying and deceiving themselves with the type of sins that they are committing. Ephraim is the largest tribe in the nation of Israel, and Samaria is the capital city of Israel. And while the rest of Israel would have been under a pretty good amount of foreign rule from Assyria— for whatever reason, through dealings and backdoor kind of bartering, uh, Ephraim and Samaria has managed to have a relatively large amount of political freedom and autonomy. And despite this freedom, despite this autonomy that they have from foreign rule, we see that there is complete and utter lawlessness in the nation. There is theft and falsehood, and thieves and bandits are running loose. But here's the crazy part. God and Hosea here aren't grieving or lamenting the lack of police on the streets to enforce the laws. They aren't crying out against the lack of social welfare programs to care for the poor and the needy. What they're crying out against is the hypocrisy of the nation of Israel. The fact that they are sacrificing and worship, worshiping God on Sundays, but then during the week, their lives don't reflect a transformed and new heart. The major sin of the people of Israel was that there was a failure to acknowledge God. This people, this nation, has seen the literal glory and goodness of God. Think back to the Exodus when God brought them out of slavery from Egypt. Think about the fact that they conquered the promised land. Think about the Davidic kingship and the fact that they saw the glory and the goodness of Solomon's reign. But they still continue in their sin and wickedness. But don't we do the same thing? This sounds a lot like Christianity in America today, doesn't it? Not only do we have the Word of God, 66 books where God has spoken through his prophets to give us everything we need for life and godliness. But we have 2,000 years of church history that we can look back on, we can reflect back on to see God's provision and his providence for his people. We go to church every Sunday. We read our Bibles. We pray. We listen to worship music. And still, still, when we are faced with the choice on what to do with sin and wickedness and temptation, how many times do we say, it's okay, I can just give in this one time? It's okay. I know that I'm a Christian. I know that Jesus died for me, so it's okay. I can give in to this sin. It's hypocrisy, and that type of thinking doesn't lead to eternal life. If we know that God is Lord over all, if we know that God, he's God over everything, but our lives don't reflect those truths, then we actually don't believe that he's Lord over all. God is going to continue his indictment on the people of Israel in verse 2. It says, but they, he's talking about Israel's leaders here, do not consider that I, God, remember all of their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. 
By their evil, they make the king glad, and the princes by their treachery. Then Hosea says in verse 4, they are all adulterers. Underline that word in your Bible for all. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. The evil that we see here is a specific kind of evil that Hosea is referring to. Four of the last six kings in the nation of Israel have been assassinated and they have been taken over uh, by another person. So the type of evil that he's talking about here is a desire for power and control over their present circumstances. The problem of the nation of Israel was essentially this. They had a ruler who was sinful, as most rulers are. And when the ruler was unable to change the the well-being and the circumstances of the nation, the religious leaders and the people would get together and they would say, hey, I think the problem's actually with the ruler. So they would kill the ruler who God had appointed over them, and they would pick a new ruler. And then, shocking, the new ruler was unable to fix their problems, and so they would kill the new ruler and put another one into place. And the cycle repeats itself, and it repeats itself, and it repeats itself. And in this specific context, over the last 20 years, four of the last six kings have been assassinated. Sounds pretty crazy, right? They think that it's maybe the ruler, and they just try to redo the cycle. But I also know that this, the definition of insanity, is doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting a different result. So we fast forward several thousand years, and what do we do in America? Every four years, we have an election. And every four years, people campaign, and they make promises about how they're going to fix the the social issues and all these different issues, and people place their hope and their confidence and their assurance in a political candidate or a political party, and then we, we get all our hopes up and we vote, and then the same cycle continues. And then we think, oh man, maybe the next four years, if we can just get that one person or that one party into office, they're going to fix what's wrong with our country. And then four years later, the cycle repeats itself. What if the problem wasn't actually with the ruler that we had in office? What if the problem was actually bigger than that? What if it didn't matter about the economic inequality or the political powers or the social injustices that were going on? What if the root problem with everything both for Israel and for us, was actually that we're all just sinners. And that no matter how hard we try, no matter how hard we try to put someone into office to fix the brokenness that we see around ourselves, we're trying to fix the brokenness in a way that it was never meant to be fixed. All this does is put us in a repeating cycle of sin. And God remembers all of our sin, and he remembers all the sin of the nation of Israel. God remembers all of their evil. And we know that one day, all of us are going to have to uh, make an account to God for what we have done. 1 Corinthians 5.10 says that, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. What's also interesting here is that God says the sins of Israel are before my face. The way this reads in the Hebrew is literally this. When God looks at Israel, all he sees is their sin. He doesn't see anything else. And what's even more interesting is what Hosea says about the people in verse 4. The word he uses to talk about the people of Israel is adulterers. And that word is talking about one specific thing. Covenant unfaithfulness. No one in Israel was keeping the covenant that Yahweh had made with his people. They were all sinning. They were all unfaithful. And no one was seeking after God. Not only does God see the sins of the people of Israel, but he also sees the sins of us today. And the same is true of us. No one is seeking after God today either. 
because it's not in our human nature to. In other words, you and I uh, aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Let me say that again. You and I aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's an important distinction. The theological word for this is called the doctrine of original sin. Psalm 51.5 says, Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner, when my mother conceived me. I personally like the way that Jeremiah 13.23 says it. He says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? And the obvious answer, practically shouting from the silence, is no! There is no way that an Ethiopian can change the color of his skin or the leopard can change his spots. There is nothing that you and I can do to change that. And then the verse ends, then also can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. In our human nature, there is nothing that we can do good because we are evil by birth. This means that you and I aren't just on a bad path and we need someone to redirect ourselves. We aren't bad people who need a good moral coach or just a good mentor. We don't need a good teacher. We need a savior. And there's a huge difference there. The Bible also tells us that every single person who has ever lived falls under this curse of original sin. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned, same word, all, and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, sin is an, equal, is an equal opportunity employer. Regardless of your race, your gender, your economic status, where you were born, who you voted for, every single person who has ever lived on the face of planet Earth falls under this curse. Except for one. Except for Jesus. And if we have trusted in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, trusting that when he died on the cross, he died as our substitute in our place, then when God looks at us, he no longer sees our sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ. And in us, what is sin? God sees as righteousness in Christ. That is the gospel. That what we could not do for ourselves, Jesus did in our place. The picture that is often used here is this image of someone who is, who is drowning in the ocean. And we're drowning in an ocean of our sin. And so what we need is we need Jesus to come along and throw us a life raft. And so we're, we're in the ocean. You know, we can't see the land all around us. So Jesus comes. He, he throws us a life raft. And all we have to do, all we have to do is reach out, grab the life raft, and Jesus can pull us, pull us to safety. Well, the problem is that's a bad analogy because you and I aren't just drowning in our sins. We are face down, dead, deep at the bottom of the ocean. And Jesus doesn't have to throw us a life raft. He has to jump into the ocean, down to the bottom, get us, make us alive, and then cause us to walk in his ways and cause us to walk in his statutes. That is the gospel, and that is what you and I need. We're going to see in verse 5, the sin of the nation of Israel continues to unfold. It says that on the day of our king, the princes become sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. Now you might be wondering, why did the princes become sick with the heat of wine? Why were they drunk and intoxicated? Well, uh, normally when people sin and they want to push out that knowledge, they want to push out the memory of their sin, they do something to make themselves forget. So fill in the blank with whatever you want, uh, whether the nation of Israel was buzzed or tipsy or intoxicated. They were drinking so that they could forget the sins that they were committing. And it doesn't just have to be alcohol. I know for a lot of Christians, those are already taboo things. Fill in the blank with what you want. Food, social media, relationships, 
working out, video games, anything to comfort you and make you not think about your sin, whatever it is, whatever you're filling the gap with in your life, all it is is making you numb to the sin that's already present in your life. And you need to be aware of that. And for the people, this gets even worse. Because in verse 6, Hosea says, With hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night, their anger smolders. Again, this doesn't just have to be anger. For the nation of Israel it is, but it might not be anger for you. Pick your poison. Pick your go-to sin. All night there, resentment smolders. All night there, lies smolder. All night there, laziness smolders. All night there, gossip smolders. For Israel, it was anger. So we see that in verse 6. In the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Have you ever been so upset that you burned with anger? So frustrated and upset that the only way to describe your feelings was an intense and burning hatred? For Israel, the way this anger manifested in itself was a godless lust for power and national control. Like I said, it's interesting that they keep thinking the problem is with their king, with their ruler. So they just replace the king and they put the next one in. And the problem with this is that Israel thinks they are in control of their own salvation. They think that they can put the next person in and that will solve all their problems. This leads them to, in verse 8, Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Economically, politically, relationally, religiously. See, not only did the people of Israel intermarry with, with foreign nations, which leads them to bring in foreign gods in idol worship, but they also tried to make political and economic alliances. These alliances forced them not to depend on God for their security, not depend on God for their uh, stability and their salvation, but they could depend on foreign nations. Because if they make a treaty with Assyria, then Assyria is not going to come and attack them. And if they can go behind Assyria's back and make a treaty with Egypt, well then, they're fine on that end. So again, the people try to take their salvation into their own hands instead of trusting in God to provide. What was once sacred and set apart for the nation of Israel was now, lo- was now no longer that. You see, Israel was chosen by God, set apart from all the nations of the Old Testament. They had a unique and special relationship that no other people group and no other nation in the Bible had. And instead of being faithful to this relationship with God, that God had set them apart from every other nation in the world, they chose to be like everybody else. They chose to do what they wanted to do. And so they rejected to be, they rejected being holy and set apart. The second half of verse 8 says that Ephraim is a cake not turned. It's kind of a weird analogy. I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, I had to go through a lot of different commentaries uh, to find the answer uh, to what this meant. And so here is my, my best guess at what this means, and I think it's pretty accurate. Ephraim is being compared to a half-baked bread. And so, I don't know if you guys bake a lot. I personally don't, because every time I try, it ends up being half-baked. So here's how it works. You put something in the oven, and if you forget to turn it halfway through, or if the temperature's off, uh, then one side is rough and crusty and burned, and the other side is uh, undercooked and underbaked and raw. So the picture here is this. Uh, The rough and rigid and hard side is Israel's stubbornness towards God. They're unwilling to repent of their sin and turn and follow after God. And the raw and undercooked and exposed other side, the soft side, represents the fact that they're exposed to all their enemies around them. That because of the fact that they are stubborn and not following after God, they will be attacked by these foreign enemies, by Assyria and by Egypt, because they are unable to defend themselves. 
for our sin, there is not only both natural consequences for our sin, like the enemies around the people of Egypt, or the people of Israel, Assyria and Egypt, but there's also future consequences for our sin, the, the judgment that God brings. Verse 9 says that strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, but he knows it not. What's, what's so ironic about this particular uh, verse here is that when someone has gray hair, they know it. They see it, and everyone else sees it. I mean, you can color it and pluck it and tuck it and cut it, but eventually uh, you need to accept the reality that you have gray hair. But here in this passage, these wicked people are unwilling to even realize that they have gray hair. Everyone else sees it except for them. See, right here, this is why you and I need accountability. This is why we need godly people speaking into our lives. The most dangerous type of person in the world is a person who is close to sin, who is flirting with sin, and when you pull them aside and you tell them about it, they say, I know, man, but I got this. I know. I can take care of myself. You have no idea how dangerous sin is. Ask yourself this question. Do you, in your life, have regular, faithful Christian accountability? A lot of Christians don't like accountability. It's hard. It's uncomfortable. It means you have to open yourself up to someone else. And they have to ask you these really hard questions. They have to press into the areas of your life that you don't want people to press into. And so, for that reason, a lot of Christians just skip over it. Instead of finding friends who love them and care about them, they just surround themselves with people who are willing to tolerate what they want to tolerate, who are willing to accept the lifestyle choices that they're making. But that's a dangerous path to go down. It's what the nation of Israel did, and look where it leads them. My favorite pastor, Joby Martin, says that the fake you is doing just fine. Fake you is doing just fine. If you want to lie to people and put up a front about how you're doing, everyone's going to think you're doing great. When you go to church on Sunday and they say, hey man, how are you doing? I mean, I'm blessed and highly favored, man. I had a great week with the Lord. Uh, but who in your life are you actually opening up to and being honest with? It doesn't have to be everyone. In fact, it shouldn't be everyone. But you should have at least one person who can sit down across the table from you and ask you hard questions about the sin in your life, about your walk with the Lord, and about how things are going. That's the way God designed us. We weren't designed to do the Christian walk alone. If you don't have an accountability partner— well, then you've got to get one. Uh, there's an old saying that the best time to plant an apple tree was 10 years ago. But the second best time is today. So if you don't have an accountability partner, don't wait. Find one today. Jose continues in verse 10. He says that the pride of Israel testifies to his face. Yet they do not return to the Lord their God. That word for return there is the same word that we use for repentance. Nor seek him for all this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt and going to Assyria. What this verse right here is talking about is Israel's desperate attempt at foreign alliances. I talked about it a little bit earlier. You see that the nation of Israel was able to maintain so much autonomy and independence from Assyria by making uh, a bunch of alliances. So they would pay a tribute to Assyria. They would do the things that Assyria needed them to do. But eventually, a few years into this treaty, Israel was like, nope, it's not working for us. So they went behind Assyria's back to Egypt, and they tried to make a treaty and alliance with Egypt for their stability and their safety. But Egypt didn't want to make a treaty with them. And so Egypt mocked them, they laughed at their face, and Israel realized that they were in big trouble because they tried to go behind Assyria's back, who would eventually overthrow them 
to another foreign nation. Verse 12 says, As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. This is really important right here. The love of God is what spurs on this discipline and this reproof. Revelation 3.19 says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and, here it is, here's our word, repent. That's Jesus talking to the church at Laodicea, a church that had one foot in the door of the church and one foot in the world. The church was described as being lukewarm. Jesus says that he loves this church, and because he loves this church, he's going to discipline them and move them to repentance. It's the only hope for the church at Laodicea. It's the only hope for the people of Israel, and it's the only hope for us today. Verse 13 says that, Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. Let me stop for a moment and just clarify real real quickly what that word here means. When it says, I would redeem, and it's talking about God, uh, that doesn't mean that God changed his mind. God is unchanging. The theological word for this is called immutable. We would say that God is immutable. He doesn't change. God's life does not change. God's truths do not change. God's character does not change. And God's purposes do not change. They are the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's part of God's character and nature. Uh, For unrepentant sinners, the fact that God does not change is really bad news because it means that God's not going to overlook their sin. He's not going to let their sin go unpunished, and he will execute his justice. But for us, for people who trust in God, who repent of our sin and follow after him. God's immutability, his unchanging nature, is really good news because it means that God's not going to fail to uphold his covenant promises and that what he said he will do, he will bring to completion on the day of Christ Jesus our Lord. Furthermore, there is no suggestion in the text that this took God by surprise and that he was not provided for this in his eternal foreknowledge and in his eternal plan. It actually reads like a rhetorical question in the Hebrew language. It would say something like this. How could I redeem them when they speak lies against me? Israel has sinned and broken the law. And by default, when they have sinned and broken the law, because of God's character, he can't leave their sin unpunished. He has to execute justice because that's part of who he is. We know this because verse 14 tells us that they do not cry to me from the heart and they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine they gash themselves, they rebel against me. In other words, Israel's repentance, their desire to not sin and turn and follow God, was not genuine. It says that they do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. They are beating their chest and crying out, and on the outside, it may even look like they feel bad for what they've done. But on the inside, there's no real heart change. They're just whining, and they're upset that they got called out on their crap, that they got called out on their sin. Uh, Jesus, in the New Testament, would call the Pharisees who acted like this whitewashed tombs. Clean and pretty and acting like they have it all together on the outside, but on the inside, dead and rotting corpses. You see, there is no real repentance or change in their hearts. Uh, The way Max said it last week is like this, that God isn't after a work, a deed, or an action. He's after a heart change. Because there isn't any work, deed, or action that you and I could do to measure up. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need Jesus to stand in our place. When I first read the part about the people of Israel gashing themselves, I was really confused. Uh, So 
I did what every good uh, Bible student would do, and I looked through the rest of the Bible to see if there's other stories where this type of thing happens. And I came across a familiar story in 1 Kings 18. It's with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And if you recall the story, uh, the prophets of Baal famously say that they can bring uh, Baal down, and he's going to bring fire down on this altar. And so in order to get Baal's attention, they cut themselves. They gash themselves. Well, shockingly, uh, Baal does not show up. And so Elijah steps onto the scene, and he prays to the God of the Bible, the Christian God. And God rains down fire on the sacrifice. And everyone there knows that day that Elijah's God, Yahweh, is the true God. Fast forward to today, and we see that the people of Israel are gashing themselves to get God's attention. So what they've done is they've taken the true, authentic worship of God, and they've mixed it and combined it with a pagan religion. And that's what all other religion is. It takes a truth that we find in the Bible, and it twists it, and it molds it, and it combines it with a different worldview to make it more acceptable, to make it more pleasing, and to make it more uh, palatable to our human natures. And so the people here think that if they, gut, they gash themselves, if they cut themselves, they're going to get God's attention. But you and I know that it doesn't matter how many times we cut ourselves or gash ourselves or do any type of work or deed. That's not going to get God's attention. Jesus had to come down and gash himself. He had to be pierced and wounded, beaten and bruised, and bleed on our behalf in order for us to be made right with God. In the final two verses of this chapter, we're finally going to get the solution to the problem that Israel faces and the problem that we face as well. We're finally going to get to see what repentance would look like should Israel choose to repent. Verse 15 says, Although I, I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, repent, but not upward to the Most High. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. God's words came true. Uh, the Egyptians mocked Israel because they tried to go behind Assyria's back and help them. And in 722 BC, the whole nation was overthrown by Assyria. When it says Egypt here at the end of verse 16, it's not talking about physical Egypt. It's talking about Egypt before the Exodus. Think slavery and bondage and captivity. So for the nation of Israel, because they didn't repent, because they didn't follow after God, they were going to go into bondage and captivity and slavery into Assyria. And for us, if we don't repent and follow after God, we're going to be stuck to bondage, captivity, and slavery to sin. So the burning question then is how do we avoid this? How do we avoid going down this path of sin and destruction? Well, just because Israel's repentance wasn't genuine doesn't mean yours can't be. Genuine repentance is the only appropriate response to the knowledge of our sin. It's what Peter told the crowd in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. He just finished unpacking for them the gospel, telling them uh, what they had done as sinners to contribute to the death of the Son of God. And when they asked him what they should do in response, what, what they should do in response to this knowledge of their sin before a good and holy God, Peter says to them in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of your sins. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. It's the only option that Peter gives the people in response to this gospel knowledge that they have. So if you have never turned and repented from your sins today and received the free gift of salvation offered by the Lord Jesus, that's the first step for you today. 
1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There are two things that the Bible tells us are required for genuine repentance. The first is this, uh, that you need to admit that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Jesus, in Luke 5.32, says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 1 John 1.8 says that if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If you fall under the category sinner, which, to my knowledge, is everyone in this room, then congratulations, you check the first box. But why do you need to admit that you're a sinner? Why is that part of the process of repentance? Well, first, if we don't, it horribly skews the meaning of the cross. If we view the cross as a demonstration of how much you and I are worth, of how badly God wanted us, that he was willing to die in our place, that's not what the Bible teaches about the cross. The Bible teaches us that the cross is a demonstration of the infinite magnitude of God's glory in comparison with the infinite crime of our sin. You see, our sin problem was so bad, and it tore down and shamed God's glory so much that his son had to die in our place. So you and I need to admit that we're sinners because God's glory is on the line. Let me also just stop real quick and add very quickly that it's never too late for anyone uh, to repent and turn from their sin and follow after Jesus. Regardless of what you've done or how old you are, uh, the Bible says that it is never too late to repent and follow after Jesus. And if you think that what you've done is too bad or you're too old, well, first, can I just say, how arrogant is it to think that Jesus came down to earth, lived the life that you and I could not live, died the death that you and I deserved, and his death was sufficient to atone for the sins of every single person on earth for whom he intended it, but you, your sin was so great that even the Son of God could not atone for it. Uh, That's false, that's arrogant, and that's pride. Uh, And it's going to get in the way of this genuine repentance. And the second thing is this, well, what if you say, well, it's too late for me. It's too late for me. I, I, it's, I'm too old. I've done too many things to, to merit this act of repentance. Well, that's true. Uh, other people might not look at your repentance and see it as genuine. Uh, but their opinion doesn't matter. And in fact, I would be willing to bet uh, that the family of the thief who hung next to Jesus on the cross didn't think anything of the fact that, that he was uh, in heaven with Jesus. They probably thought that he was a sinner. I mean, he was crucified after all. They probably thought he was spending eternity in hell. Uh, but their opinion doesn't matter. Uh, He's in paradise with Jesus. So it is never too late to turn and follow after Jesus. The second thing that the Bible tells us is needed for genuine repentance is the actual act of repentance. That is, you actually have to repent and turn away from your sins. But you're not just going to turn away from your sins. You're going to turn from your sins and follow after Jesus instead. Repentance is more than just being sorry for sin. Uh, The Hebrew word used in both verse 10 and verse 16 translated as repentance many times, is more accurately understood as a turning back to God. Uh, In our passage, the word used was return. It literally means to return to God. So this act of turning, this act of repenting, has the power to redirect a person's entire life and uh, affect their eternal destiny. Well, in the New Testament, uh, the language used for repentance is the same. The Greek word used for repentance means more than just regret or sorrow. It means to turn around and to change direction. It always, get that, always involves a change from the wrong to the right, away from sin and to righteousness. Repentance involves not just being sorry for your sin, 
but a sorrow and regret that leads to a changed way of thinking and a changed life. Just think for a minute. If you told someone you were sorry for what you did, but then the next day you did the same exact thing, how many times in a row would you do that before they realized that maybe what you were doing wasn't genuine? For the sake of a, a lighthearted illustration, let's just say that I slapped Alexander. And uh, the next day I apologized and said, you know what, man, I'm sorry for what I did. I realized it was wrong. So I want to repent of that and, and not do it again. And then two hours later, I slapped Alexander and we repeated the cycle. Well, first off, he's probably going to be pretty upset with me. And secondly, it's probably not going to take two or three iterations of this cycle for him to think, hey, man, uh, I don't actually think you understand what true, genuine repentance looks like. See, authentic repentance is a lifestyle. It's not just a one-time thing. To think that we can just repent from our sins and that we're going to be fine means that eventually you'll run out of sins to repent of. And you and I both know that we are simultaneously justified and sinners. That we will always be sinners while we live here on this earth. And so repentance is more than just doing something. It's a posture of our heart. As Christians, we never get beyond the call to repent and believe the gospel. That's what authentic repentance is talking about. It's the way we live our lives in response to our knowledge of the gospel. So here's the comforting part for followers of Christ. If you are truly trusting in Christ, then you can't confess a sin for which Christ has not already provided atonement for through his blood on the cross. So, working at this discipline of confession and repentance should not move us to despair, but rejoicing. Because it should give us confidence that when Jesus died on the cross and he said, it is finished, he meant it. So there is forgiveness and redemption in the blood of Christ. Martin Luther famously said, be a sinner and sin boldly. But, it's a big but, let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice in Christ who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. So for the modern English reader today, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. Get used to it. And the more you get used to it, the more the cross will make sense as the foundation of your entire life. Confess your sins out loud, repent from them, and you will have victory over sin in this life because of the cross of Christ. My challenge for us today would be this. Find a specific area in your life where there is sin and repent of it. And we've already established that we're all sinners and that regardless of where we're at in the salvation process, we have sin in our lives. So the question isn't if we have sin, but where in our lives we have sin. So find an accountability partner. Find someone you trust. Track down that area of sin in your life and repent of it this week. The people of Israel were on a path to destruction. And so are we. But Jesus gives us a different option. We can repent and follow after him. He's worth it. Jesus is totally worth it. Uh, to close our time together today, I'm going to read a prayer from the Valley of Vision. The Valley of Vision is a book on prayer written by the Puritans. And I think the posture of what they're getting at with repentance is, is really good. Uh, it might sound like Old English, uh, but that's just because I'm not smart enough to change the words. So uh, just bear with me here uh, and let the words just kind of sit over us as we take this posture of repentance uh, before the Lord. Uh, Thou hast imputed my sin to my substitute and has imputed his righteousness to my soul, clothing me with a bridegroom's robe, decking me with jewels of holiness. But in my Christian walk, I am still in rags. My best prayers are stained with sin. My penitential tears are so much impurity. 
My confessions of wrong are so many aggravations of sin, and my receiving the Spirit is punctured with selfishness. I need to repent of my repentance. I need my tears to be washed. I have no robe to bring to cover my sins, no, lo- lo- no loom to weave my own righteousness. I am always standing clothed in filthy garments, and by grace I'm always receiving change of raiment. For thou dost always justify the ungodly. I am always going into the far country and always returning home as a prodigal, always saying, Father, forgive me, and you are always bringing forth the best robe. Every morning let me wear it. Every evening let me return in it, to go out to the day's work in it, be married in it, be wounded in death in it, to stand before the great white throne in it, to enter heaven in it shining as the sun. Grant me never to lose sight of the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the exceeding righteousness of salvation, the exceeding glory of Christ, the exceeding beauty of holiness, and the exceeding wonder of grace. Holy Lord, I have sinned times without number and been guilty of pride and unbelief, of failure to find thy mind in thy word, of neglect to seek thee in my daily life. My transgressions and shortcomings present me with a list of accusations, but I bless thee that they will not stand against me, for all have been laid on Christ. Go on to subdue my corruptions and grant me grace to live above them. Let not the passions of the flesh nor the lustings of the mind bring my spirit into subjection, but you rule over me in liberty and power. I thank you that many of my prayers have been refused. I have asked amiss and do not have. I have prayed from lusts and been rejected. I have longed for Egypt and been given a wilderness. Go on with your patient work, answering no to my wrongful prayers and fitting me to accept it. Purge from me every false desire, every wrong aspiration, every contrary thing to thy rule. I thank you for your wisdom and your love, for all the acts of discipline to which I am subject, for sometimes putting me into the furnace to refine my gold and remove my dross. No trial is so hard to bear as a sense of my own sin. If you should give me choice to live in pleasure and keep my sins, or to have them burnt away with trial, give me sanctified affliction, Lord. Deliver me from every evil habit, every oppression of former sins, everything that dims the brightness of your grace in me, everything that prevents me from taking delight in you. Then I shall bless thee, God of Jerusalem, for helping me to be upright. Amen.